HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Remember, we're during our fun drive right now, so um, get the Christmas spirit. Give us some money. (laughs) Push the pledge button, people. Come on. So today we're going to have a chat with uh, Michael Levitin, who is one of my favorite guests. He's been on once before, and we had a fantastic uh, conversation, which I totally enjoyed. Uh, We met because he is the former chairman of the board for Chefs Collaborative, a great group, which I fully support. And he is also the chef owner of Lumiere and the chef and partner, excuse me, of Area 4 in Boston, Massachusetts. And he is a seven-time James Beard Foundation Award nominee and recipient at national awards of national awards from Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, Gourmet, and Sever. Way to make me feel really inadequate, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the show again. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on again. Oh, it's so much fun to have you. I, I really enjoyed our last conversation. So um, we decided the last time we spoke was actually right after the Chef's Collaborative, and one of the things that you and I agreed, especially in the wake of at that time, uh, which was in the late fall, there were a lot of strikes going on in fast food restaurants or quick service restaurants, and we were talking about labor relations. So I thought today we would pick apart the labor relations issues in restaurant work because they are pretty naughty. Um, you know, I've, I've done some restaurant work myself, um, but not a lot. Uh, so I won't pretend to know all that much about it. Um, but obviously, um, there are huge labor issues uh, around restaurants, both uh, upscale and more downscale. So can you just give us a quick uh, sort of tour of what are the most um, vexing problems that you face, for example, in the type of restaurants that you run? Yeah, so I, I've got one somewhat high-end restaurant and one more middle-of-the-road. Um, and, and I think it, it's also best to sort of divide front-of-the-house and back-of-the-house labor yes, issues. Yes, I think so, too. Um, so that in the front-of-the-house, you know, so much of it is tipping-related. And... Um, you know whether whether those tips are being equitably distributed or according to uh, whatever states or cities' local laws, um, 
you know, I think that's, that's the major one. There have been uh, a number of uh, high-profile chefs over the past couple of years who have gotten tagged for maybe playing a little, uh, a little fast with some of those rules. Uh-huh. Well, um, wait a minute. Let's back up. What are those rules? Because I think it's like if your tips do not equal minimum wage, then the restaurant is supposed yeah, to now for, for make the up the difference. That, is that that the... I've always been associated with, that's, that's really a non-issue. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, the tipped... Here in Massachusetts, tipped wage right now is 263, and I think minimum wage is eight. Um, so, in a restaurant with you know a, a reasonable you know uh, check average, you know over 20, 30, 40, you know up into the 70s or more, right. um, tip, as long as the restaurant is reasonably busy, um, they're going to be well above uh, minimum wage. Right. So, well above um, eight dollars an hour. Yeah. And let's face it, that's not an easy wage to live no, on. No, that's, that's, that's nothing, which, you know, is sort of another, a whole other conversation whole other, down yeah, the road. Yeah, right. Well, we're going to get there. We're going to talk about right. minimum wage. Um, so in, in Massachusetts, some of the stuff that we've seen relates to how those tips are distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and tips uh, are supposed, and I, I'm hardly an expert here um, and don't know the letter of the law, but um, tips are supposed to be distributed to tipped employees only. Uh-huh. Um, so that would Restaur- be servers. Restaurateurs host. cannot dictate uh, how that tip pool is distributed. So some houses are pooled, some houses are uh, are not. Uh huh. Um, so, so if it's so, your you know, check, it's your tip. Right, and you know you need to then take care of the um, people sort of beneath you. So whether you have bus busers or runners, um, you know they need to be tipped out as well. Right. Um, but as I said, it's it's really we're not. We as restaurateurs are not allowed to say you have to distribute X, Y, or Z. Huh. Uh, um, fortunately, we've been always able to hire well and hire people who understand the value of a tipped house. Right. In that it does get everybody working together. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but also that non, non-tipped employees, so whether it's management or hosts and hostesses, um, dishwashers, are not supposed to be tipped. Right. So what's their right. wage average? They just get minimum wage uh, or whatever you decide? No, no, I, I, don't, I, don't think I've, I don't think I've ever <laughs> paid minimum wage. Um, God bless you, you Michael. Know. I knew there was a reason I liked you so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, look, you just, you, it, it's a bad long-term strategy, uh, mm. I think. Yeah. You know, you, you do much better to... You know, hopefully find good people and pay them well and, you know, hope that you, uh, that that reflects, that, that, that commitment to your employees is reflected in their commitment to you and to your customers. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, um, so more of a long-term strategy. Um, I'll let you know how it works out someday. <laughs> well, you're by no means at the end of your career, my friends. <laughs> oh, but I was so well. hoping. Um, <laughs> Oh, come on, Michael. It's so much fun <laughs> running restaurants. Uh, I don't know how you yeah. guys do it. I'd be, my hair would be completely white, and I would weigh about two pounds, which might not be the worst thing. But um, so, so you have the tip out, the tip out in the right. And, and, and so, who you know, I, I think that, you know some the of the higher profile cases that you know I've seen both in Massachusetts and in in New York relate yeah. to how that tip pool is distributed. Whether management was getting a cut of the tips, whether uh, tipped employees were not uh, being whether. All of that tipple was not being distributed, whether the house was taking a certain cut off the top. Wow. Yeah. That's very naughty. I think that sounds... Yeah, it's, it's really, really not cool. No, really not cool. Um, but let's go back to talk for a second about the minimum wage, because one, when I was you know, preparing for this program, I was reading a few articles about... Um, 
you know, just about the industry and some of the controversy around tipping, which has been, in, especially in recent years, very controversial. Um, right. And I saw that the National Restaurants Association had literally spent millions of dollars in lobbying in order to resist uh, hiking the minimum wage. So right. if they did, I mean, if uh, cooler heads prevailed and the minimum wage was adopted as opposed to, say, the $2.63 an hour, uh, you know, base for you know, an employee, and I'm not talking about your restaurants, I'm talking about just in general. Right. So um, I think you need, to, you need to separate the tipped employee versus non-tipped. Um, yeah. So there, there, was, there was actually a proposal here in Massachusetts to raise the uh, tipped employee wage to minimum as well, so that we would, I would have had to been paying my servers 8 bucks an hour. Um, and then they would have made the tips on the, on top of that. And, you know, on, on the one hand, that that might actually have been good for the caliber of service that people got. Right. In that... Um, in that all of a sudden waiters are now making a lot more money, yeah. um, and perhaps that um, you know it, uh, it that would engender a uh, over the long term a if there's more money available in that industry, then you tend to attract better, uh, better, more committed people. Yes, absolutely. And I, right, and I think that's you know as 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 you know owners you know or, or people that run businesses that's a lot of what we face is that the wages in our industry are. Are artificially low. Yeah, I think by and large. Yes, I would um, agree. You know, when I started cooking in 1988, um, you know, I think my first bare bones, you know, pantry slash prep cook job might have been eight bucks an hour. Yeah, that sounds um, right for me. And uh, you know, but you know, at once I started working the line, um, it was pretty quick. Pretty quickly, I was making about twelve an hour, um, mm-hmm. which is significantly over <laughs> minimum then, and is. Still significantly over minimum, um, and you know we're we're not starting line, you know we're we're starting line cooks at not much above that now, and that's twenty six years later. Right. Um, wow. And you know, given that the the cost of living increases that have that gone on since then, uh, you know that actually represents a significant decline in real wages. Yes, and you also mentioned uh, sort of off the air um, the the whole issue of of how how much debt kids go into when they go to culinary school. Culinary right. I mean, school is uh, very it's, expensive. It's a, a very impressive amount of debt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, um, that means that, you know, the choices that they face, you know, even coming out of cooking school, it's not like they're ready to be sous chef by and large. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So that they're, they're looking at entry-level jobs, and if those entry-level jobs are paying 10 12 bucks an hour, uh, it's going to take them forever and maybe half of another lifetime to, uh, to pay back $100,000. That's right. Yeah, it's frightening. Right? Um, and so, you know, I don't blame those kids at all for, you know, fi- for immediately finding the worst corporate job they can find, um, you know, one, but one that will actually enable them to... Uh, to make a living. Sure, and pay back their loans. Absolutely. Right. I, I can't imagine anything scarier than coming out of culinary school. And I you know, and I think that um especially uh as as sort of the sort of chef career became sexier, which would I can I will I will go out on a limb and date it to Anthony Bourdain because I worked on his book Kitchen Confidential way back in 2000 and right. um and that was kind of the beginning of chefs being super cool. And then, you know, when I sent him out on a 46-city tour for a cook's tour, um, that was like, it was unbelievable how suddenly it was like the coolest thing in the world was to be a chef and have a tattoo and wear a ring on your thumb. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and, and culinary schools really reaped the benefit of that. And then somehow, 
you know, these kids came out of school with these massive debts. And, right. And as you say, wages have not in any real way increased along with the cost of living. So right. what's happened to all those kids, actually? Are they all in the corporate jobs you just suggested? And what would those corporate jobs No, you know, I, would, I, you know the, I was actually speaking to someone from the, the corporate sector, and even they're having trouble finding people at, at wages that I, you know, just kind of shocked me that, you know, they were having trouble finding people at that, at that, at that level. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what needs to be done, um, but there's, there's definitely a later labor shortage in this industry. There is? Um, yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to chefs all across the country, and everyone is yeah, saying we can't, we can't find people. Is it they can't find good people, they can't find trained people, or they can't find people who are interested in going into the industry, period? Yes, to both. Uh-huh. And, and is that because is that's, that's probably a reflection of, of the sort of the wage uh, disparity between an entry level in, uh, you know, the stock market and an entry level in yeah, a culinary Yeah, you know, I, I think there's, look, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a million different confounding factors here. Yeah. You know, in that, look, this is a, you, you re, in or, this is a very hardworking industry. Yes. And, you know, unless you love it, it's, it's too much work. Yeah, And absolutely. the wages aren't great. Um, and, you know, we, I think we've, uh, tightening, da- tightening, uh, uh, immigration policy over the past, uh, however many years doesn't make it any easier. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, th- this industry, uh, you know, if we had to hire, if we were really forced to hire nothing but legal or, you know, I hate that term. Registered. Um, yeah, how, whatever you want to call it, documented workers, verified yeah. workers, whatever you want to call it. Find find your a politically correct buzzword. But if we <laughs> if we were really held to that, yeah, um, you know, uh, we'd be sunk. Wow! Right? I mean, there's so many restaurants opening now, um, and so you know, so much more money being spent on food outside of the home. Yes, people are cooking less and less and less and less, so that there's so many more sort of entry-level positions, right? but uh, on so many different levels, the price of food in our country um, is, does not reflect the true cost of, of pr- production. Yes. Right, and, and labor has been, I think, one of those areas that has been most squeezed over the past couple of decades. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it would be nice. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. So San Francisco passes a... Uh, paid time off, which Massachusetts just passed, and um, uh, living wage uh, laws. And I don't know how it is that they all banded together, but every restaurant now has a, you know, roughly, I think, 4% charge added for those things. Really? It's a surcharge, yeah. Uh-huh. And is that, that's reflected in everyone's check. You see it as just yeah. like a surcharge. You don't know it's, what it is. It's, it's a surcharge. It's across the board. Everybody's paying it. Mm-hmm. Um uh, or all the customers are paying it, um, mm-hmm. and but it's done as a surcharge and not a raising of prices for a whole host of tax and insurance uh, issues. Wow! But but it is it's passing along, you know, it's passing along that cost. You guys vote for this, fine. You pay for it. Right, right, right. Which I'm fine with. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. You we know, uh, and and it's you know all these other costs, as, as I mentioned, have also you know gone up for us. So when I when I opened Lumiere. 16 years ago, I had a really nice health plan for all of my cooks, and we were paying all of it. Uh-huh. Um, and now, you know, we, we as mandated by the state, um, we're paying half, but 
because the costs have driven risen so dramatically, it's it's a crappy plan. Wow. Yeah, I did want to ask you about, um, and that's kind of a back of the house issue because obviously waiters or servers don't get their usually more sort of in the temp help category am i right well i don't know i mean you you know it, for for most of my restaurants these you know or or for well let's say for lumiere you know my these are folks who are working full time or close enough to it that they do qualify for insurance right um and you know some of them uh some of them you know this is what they did you uh-huh. know this is their full time occupation right um and, and uh you know they've got houses and mortgages and right. this is what they do um, and they're very good at it, and they really have adopted this culture of of service. Um, I think as a nation, and this is, I think, some of what you were speaking at uh, at the beginning. Um, you know, we part, it, in certain segments we do have a culture of service where it's valued, and that's where the tips are great, and you know, right. some waiters are making you know very nice money. Sure. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you go to a you know fast casual restaurant in the deep south mm-hmm. you have people who aren't or who are tipped employees not even making minimum wage yeah right and the right. restaurant is not making up that minimum wage requirement right yeah i think that's probably pretty common where you're supposed to be making minimum wage at the very least and if your tips don't make you add up to minimum wage the restaurant's supposed to provide that extra and right. i suspect it is very common especially uh, where you've just described in the deep south where you know, I don't know. But and I'm sure if, it occurs elsewhere, too. I just happen to remember reading something about yeah. that down there. So And chains. Um, I mean, I you know, when I was looking into this, I saw that, you know, uh, on the Department of Labor statistics, I mean, if you if you scroll down to the Department of Labor, you can see who's being, you know, who has owed back money or who has just, you know, what employee section has just won a settlement against XYZ employer. And it's often chain, small chain restaurants. Are right. the worst offenders with this, or at least in the brief amount of research that I did. But I want to go. I want to go back to the tipping thing because, you know, um, there has been a lot of controversy about tipping, and um, some restaurant chains um, out west. There was one I think called uh, the Lantern. Is that right? And um, there was another guy in the south. Um, they adopted a no tip policy, and they just added on a twenty percent gratuity charge to the checks, and um, and they saw that a lot of. Um, a lot of their customers like really resented that, like didn't yeah. like it. And I think it's kind of interesting that people, you know, they want to use a tip as either a reward or a punishment, but it doesn't seem to percolate through that, you know, sometimes people just don't tip or they don't tip adequately because they don't know or they don't, you know, they got mad or whatever it is and they don't have the sense of what the what impact that has. At, right. At and I, I think there's there's also again, I think this comes back to not just the idea of the culture of service, mm-hmm. but also a, that we as a culture don't value service. Yeah. Right. And yes. I, I think that perhaps, you know, previously we did. I think certain cities, you know, I've worked in New York and San Francisco as well. Uh-huh. I think those cities, by and large, there was a much different culture of service than there might be in Boston. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. And that you had, you know, not only did you have more long-term, you know, lifelong or, you know, full, full occupation waiters um, in those cities than I think we, I see in Boston. Uh-huh. Um, but I think you also had, a, a, in some ways, a, a a diner culture that was and again I only I look I worked at a very you know rarefied stratosphere of restaurants so yeah. you know limited sample size here yeah. um, the, <laughs> um, okay. but the there was much more of a 
um, a sense of appreciation for a, a job well done in the front of the house. Well, I was, I mean, that was sort of one of my, my key questions here. Is, I mean, I, as a child and, and also as a young adult, I lived in Europe a few times. And, um, you know, the gratuity is added onto the check. There's just no question about that. No matter what, there's always a surcharge for that. But also the, you know, the that, as you call it, the, um, the culture of service is alive and well. And like being a waiter right. is a completely legitimate and respectable profession to follow. Right. And uh, people pursue it throughout their year. It's not just beautiful young Young somethings in their twenties who were trying to get an acting career going. Um, it's you know men and women who just think this is a fine way to make a living and they do it. Um, right. And and that that culture really does not exist in this country, as far as I am aware. Although you may obviously have more insight into that. Um, yeah, I think I think we I've I've definitely seen that in certain places. Yeah. Um, but I think, by and large, you are, you are absolutely correct. And I think that's really unfortunate because then um, you're, you, because your, your population, your server population is very transitory, and that must be a tremendous handicap to developing the esprit de corps necessary uh, to run a restaurant, you know, a high, especially a high-end restaurant successfully, but even like a mid-level restaurant. I mean, you want yeah, everybody to work together, I, know each other, get along, you know, have that sense of like, yeah, this is a family, we're doing it together. Right, I think it's it's you know at, at the highest level at, at you know the the, the high end restaurants it's a little easier because there's just a bigger pot of money floating around there for yeah. for for servers so that you know there's um, you know you're you're sort of that that self selects you know the best people end up there by and large yeah. um, and the people who are most committed to I mean and let's face it to be a high end server means you have to have a lot of knowledge. Um, not just about service, but about wine and food, and yep. you know you have to be very good at reading people, and you know all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know that requires a different level of commitment than you know, let's say, the summer job on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> I had that job. <laughs> right. Yeah, I worked in the kitchen though. I was not a server, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to take a short break here because um, we have to do a sponsor drop, uh, but we'll be right back with Michael Levitin to talk about some of the sort of under undercover issues of restaurant uh, of the restaurant industry. So stay with us. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Barwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking today with Michael Levitin, the owner of Lumiere in Boston, as well as Area 4, owner-partner. Um, and we're talking about labor issues in the restaurant industry, um, partly because of all of the, you know, the, the revelation that McDonald's... Uh, 
you know, can work a McDonald's employee can work 40 hours a week and still not make enough money uh, to, you know, take care of a family of four. And thus we are subsidizing them through Medicare and food stamps. Um, <clears throat> but right on up the, the line to why people don't stay into stay in the restaurant industry as a career path as servers. Um, and I, I, I really do think that's a very interesting um reflection of our culture where we expect everyone to be a star somehow. And so you're constantly looking for ways to be a star without and and failing to recognize that, you know, being a waiter, a good waiter is just as good a career path as being a teacher or a fireman. Um, except that it isn't unless you're working in a good restaurant like Michael's. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, if you don't have a good, uh, if you don't, if your checks are not high enough, then you're not going to make enough money. Is the bottom line here, right? Yeah, or unless you're, you know, you know, basically, you know, figuratively on roller skates because you're that restaurant is so busy that you're not, you're making right. it up in volume. Right. Um, you know. Um, and, and and look, there are plenty of places that that do that as well. Oh yeah. You know, it's and and you know, you spoke about. Um, you know the the different culture in Europe, and I think that you know that's the the backlash against some of the uh, let's say no tipping programs at different restaurants mm-hmm. um, is in part um, you know because of our, our as as you mentioned our cultural difference um, you know we we add uh, a certain tip percentage to large parties and right in some ways that has you know offended some of my regulars sometimes who said well geez i would have you know i wish you hadn't done that i'd have added more and i mean they add more anyways but yeah. you know they um those who are really grateful and understand yeah they tip well um and you know other people just you know are still in that you know straight 15% mentality. Yeah. Um, and, and it's tough. I, I can see both arguments for, you know, adding it um, and just saying, okay, this is what, this is what you know, all the waiters are going to get, yeah. um, whether it's an hourly wage or whether it's the tips, you know, distributed um, by the house. Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, I don't know whether that, you know, you can make very good, uh, legitimate arguments that that will increase the level of service, or whether, or whether you know, on the other hand, it might make uh, servers complacent. Uh, it might make them complacent. Um, yes, and uh, yeah, that might not strive. But I, I mean, I, I have seen it both. I have seen it um, described in both ways, in the sense that. So here's a quote from Kristen Fernandez from the National Restaurant Association, who said the restaurant industry is still a heavily service-based industry, and tipping promotes the spirit of hospitality that is traditionally associated with our workforce. But in a way, I would think it is it fosters the spirit of competition and backbiting. And I mean, like in the wrong culture, the wrong sort of yeah. orga- organic um, but culture. But I also in a think restaurant. that you know, it, it also allows it allows for um, customers. Um, you know, by and large, most of them who are really great. But it does allow for certain uh, customers to behave badly and to not, yeah. you know, to use the the tip or lack thereof as a punitive measure, yes. um, as opposed to a reward for. A job, and what you know, there's is a difficult thing to communicate. It, it's not the tip, you know, as it's come to be construed here, is not just a reward for a job well done, but because the the tipped minimum wage is so low, the tip really needs to become a reward for just the job. 
That's right. It does not right. foster excellence necessarily. Right. It's like, oh, well, I'm only going to make 10 bucks an hour when all is said and done anyway, so why kill myself? Right. Right? Um, uh, yeah, but I think also it's, you know, we need to convince the some of the customers as to that that's the nature. It's not that you get 15% for you know, doing a good job. The way the way this job is now structured is, look, they need the 15% whether they do good or bad, right? Yeah, right. You know, and so it's, uh, and obviously, look, I'd love to see, um, you know, more for the tipped employees. And I think right now, you know, it would be great if I could say, you know, um, there's a part of me that would love to, you know, eliminate tipping and say, fine, you know, we're going to pay all our wage staff 25 bucks an hour. Right. Right. And, and just keep all the, you know, yeah, and charge that surcharge. Right. Um, but I don't think it would fly. Would I think it not I'd fly su- with I'd your consumers? Or would, you, would it not fly with your servers? What do you, who do you um, think would be most... Uh, you know, because like a lot of servers, I think, feel like, well, I, I mean, I get great tips because I'm so great. You know, so I don't want just 20... I don't want to be limited to 25 bucks an hour when some nights I can make 50 because my tips are so excellent. Right. I mean, you um, would yeah, find I mean, that look, too, right? You know, look, the, 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 tip, the, the amount that servers go home with on a Saturday night is generally different from, from the amount on a Tuesday. Yes. Right. You know, right. I, I think that's a pretty safe statement, you know, at all but the busiest restaurant. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so, yes, there is some, some variation there. And on the other hand, I can also see, you know, I, I've spoken with a lot of servers say, you know, um, it, you know they, they're getting – their time gets monopolized by certain tables yep. or they're, you know, or, you know, someone is either particularly great or partic- particularly horrific. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that can, you know, look, if you're getting, if you're a server and you are just getting brutalized by a particular customer, your, your whole night spirals down. Yes, I can right? imagine. And That's so right. to be able for them to just, to be able to say, you know what, I don't have to, this person's trying to kill me and <laughs> I don't, I don't need. I don't need to look. I'm getting paid no matter what. I don't need to give in to this. Right. Right. I think to me would be very empowering. Yes, I, I would think that. I would think that also. So yes, right. and I mean, also the fact I, I think, that look, I would always if, know how if much money. If that's money. the case, I think I think that uh, uh, you know restaurateurs have a, have a a duty to step in and you know ask those people to kindly get the hell out. Yeah. Um, have you ever had you to know, do that, Michael? Oh yes, we've had to eighty-six customers a lot. Really? Wow. Yeah, you know, if, if, if you know, look, we we, I, I think that we take great pride in doing what we do because we want to make people happy. Right. Right, and we try very, very hard to do it. Yeah. But there, there is a certain segment of the population that doesn't really want to be happy. Yes. <laughs> um, and. It's no fun for anyone. It's no fun for me. It's no fun for the cooks. It's no fun for the front of the house. Yeah. Any of them to have to deal with those people. Yeah. Yeah. I can. So imagine. there have been plenty of more, not a lot, but there have been plenty of times where we've had to say, you know, um, clearly we can't make you happy. Yeah. Um, and we take great pride in being able to make people happy. So dinner tonight is on us, but perhaps you ought to choose another restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. In the future. Spoken like a true diplomat. Um, I want to just, because we're, we're starting to run out of time here, I always thought it was really unfair that cooks don't get tipped. And as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, a lot of times these kids are coming out of culinary, they have a lot of debt, and they're starting at a pretty low entry-level wage, as they should. I mean, it's not like you should come out of, 
you know, you haven't right. just finished law school and you're not starting a job at eighty thousand dollars an hour. You're, you know, you're coming out of culinary and you're gonna, you got to work your way up like everybody else. But <clears throat> I always thought it was really unfair that cooks don't get to share in the tips. And so how, how, what's, how well, do you that's, deal that's with that? Well, that's sort of legally mandated now. You I know. know. I, I saw right. that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that you know, again, this comes down to how, what can we, as an industry, do to raise the raise the level of kids coming out of cooking school mm-hmm. make you know to me part of it is that the cooking schools perhaps are not doing the best job of training cooks mm. interesting right yeah. you yep. know and that the kid coming out of cooking school for me is not necessarily going to be a ton more valuable than someone who just wants to work hard right and, do a little learning on their own. I didn't go to cooking school. Um, yeah. I've been in, I've worked with plenty of people who did and who are terrific, um, plenty of people who didn't who are terrific, and, you know, also I've worked with, you know, people that went or didn't went and they were terrible. So right, it's, right. I don't think it's necessarily a function of, of school or not school. It's a function of the individual. Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, like, you know, the, to me, the, 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 a better analogy, I, 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 would like to see the, the cooking schools be more like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the way they might be for the, uh, the building trades. Uh-huh. You know, if we, we go to a more apprentice-based program. I was just going to um, say that, yeah. Right, so that, you know, we're training. Now, that being said, every restaurant is different, and it's, it, is, um, it is difficult to, to generalize. Mm, it sure you know, is, I, yeah. I think there's a lot more difference between, you know, restaurants than there is between electricians. Yes, of course. And, and I mean, you know, maybe so I just models, pissed off yeah. an electrician by saying that, but at the end of the day, a lot of the basics are pretty similar. Yeah. Um, so is the, and and I don't know the answer to this, but is there a way that you know, coming out of school, these kids can be more prepared to provide immediate value to us, you know, uh, us chefs and you know, restaurateurs. Right. Well, I mean, to go back to the European model. Right. One more time. I mean, these people, you know, like, so I did a stage in a restaurant in France when I was in my 20s. And I was, um, you know, they, I was obviously a ludicrous figure of fun for them. These were kids who were just starting high school and maybe finishing junior high. And they went to school, you know, so when you were really a kid, like 13 or 14, You'd go to the restaurant for one and a half days a week. You'd go to school the rest of the week. And then, and as you aged, um, you would, you know, but it, it implied that you had to know that you wanted to work in the restaurant industry at a pr- fairly young age, which I think is a little tough. But at the same time, by the time these kids graduated from high school, they could run a kitchen because right. they had worked up. They were les apprentis, the, the apprentices, and they were, you know, rotated throughout all the stations at the at the restaurant, and they started like me, you know, like I was the worst person. Um, so I was like basically plucking game birds, you know, for eight hours a day. But, I mean, that's what, you know, like that system of meant of, of apprenticeship. And then I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the mentoring that I know goes on in a lot of restaurants. And it's sort of, that's kind of a continuation of that concept. How much do you think like, okay, so you don't get the apprenticeship uh, thing happening. Culinary schools don't provide that opportunity unless it's, what about the, like the New York, um, what is it? The French Culinary Alliance or right. French so Culinary that, Institute. Yeah, they mean, have a restaurant. A lot of the work. schools do provide, you know, apprenticeship or, you know, internship or externship yeah. opportunities. Um, you know, but whether it's, you know, Three months at a pop really isn't, mm-hmm. 
you know, it isn't really enough. If you look at the idea of being a chef is, you know, this, this mastery of a whole mess of different skill sets. Yes. Right? The only way to gain that mastery is by doing it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, I joke with kids coming in, you want to learn how to, you know, great, you, you went to cooking school and you, you know, you had a day on butchering chickens. Right. Right. Well, the only way you're going to get good at it is do two cases a day for, you know, four months. Yeah. Right. <laughs> then you're good at butchering chickens, and then yeah. you can take that knowledge and, and, you know, extrapolate to any other bird. Right. Exactly. Right? Do, yeah. a, do a whole mess of, of pigs or sheep, and, you know, hey, it's a four-legged animal. They're, essentially, they all become the same. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just a question of size. But, again, you have to have repetitions. Yes. Right. It's not something where you can just learn this in a book and expect to be fine with it in a restaurant environment. Right. Where you're often right. hurried. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. I, I watched a YouTube video on it once. I'm ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, it doesn't work like that. No, you know? it totally doesn't. Um, and, and I mean, especially with line cooking. I mean, yeah. that takes a lot. And it's, it's the ability to process a whole mess of information simultaneously, make a lot of split-second decisions, mm-hmm. have great hand-eye coordination, mm-hmm. understand what's going on in the pan with all your senses, right? Yes. The only way to gain that skill is to do it for a few years. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. And, and to be paying attention the whole time. Yes. Right? And, and we're, not, we're not setting up a system where that kind of level of, of effort um, and commitment is, is being rewarded. Uh-huh. Interesting. Right? So we need, we, I think, as an industry, need to find a way to, across the board, raise wages. And, you know, I think that, in, in part, is, you know, where we as a nation are so used to the, the, this idea of food is inexpensive. Yes. Relative to, you know, what we, not that most of the nation knows what it truly costs, but food is relatively inexpensive here. Yeah. Um, Especially if and, you're in a lower, you know, in a lower strata of restaurant, it's right. really cheap. <laughs> right. And yeah. now that, you know, look, now that, you know, people have all these allergy issues and other food issues, and, you know, now that we're dealing, you know, not at my restaurants, but we're dealing with a lot of crappy food, yeah. right, that is potentially poison or poisoned, Yeah. Um, you know, we are asking uh, those people who handle our food to, to really look out for us at, at, at all points. That's right? right. And if we're not willing to reward them for that, then what does that say about our own sort of commitment to our own health and our, you know... And well-being. I, no, I, right. I totally agree. That's a great point, Michael. I mean, because not only are these people uh, responsible for, you know, looking out for your food allergies or whatever, but there's also the whole issue of food safety in the kitchen, which everyone has to be trained in. Right. And nobody really talks about that. And the other thing that people don't talk about when they think they want to be a chef is the intense management and financial management skills that you have to be able to acquire along the way. And I, I, I've always thought that was very challenging. Like you can think you, you're the best cook in the world, but if you can't manage people or you don't know how to balance your, you know, spreadsheet of, you know, uh, your your P and what is it profit and loss P and L then you're not going to stay in business for very long. So there's that whole strata of, of uh, learning that has to go along. And I was, you know, your, your discussion about, you know, how long, how long it takes to learn how to butcher chickens properly or, or quickly and efficiently. Like how does, how do kids get that knowledge? 
I'm wondering, because uh, yeah. that's not in a culinary school uh, no, training, and I is think it? that that comes, you know, that comes from. Look, you know, the the general trajectory is, you know, you 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 master one station and they move you to the next, and you master all the stations, and then they, you know, let you they they let you run the line, or maybe you do some, you know, some of the uh, the fancy prep in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then they teach you ordering, and you know, then they make you a sous chef. And so there is this idea of a progression through your career right. doing this. Um, on the and and hopefully you got you know hopefully you get some of it in in cooking school. But you know, um, a lot of it is mentorship, and a lot of it is is your own ability to to teach yourself or acquire that knowledge yourself. Right. You know, yeah. I went out and took a you know two day restaurant accounting seminar, which really you know, clarified a lot. Um, but that was something that, you know, I, I, I knew, I knew I needed to learn it. Yeah. Fine. Right. Go out and spend, you know, a bunch of money, but it's, (laughs) But money well spent. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's, in the last couple minutes of the show, let's talk about the mentoring that often does go on in restaurants like yours. Um, I mean, my experience in high-end restaurants is that there is a tremendous amount of of grooming of young chefs um, so that they will be ready to open their own restaurant. How does that work? Because, I mean, how do you decide... Uh, well, I think, you know, you know candidate those, A over those, candidate those B kids and... make themselves apparent right away. Yeah. You know, in, in the, the kids who are most committed, asking the, the most and best questions. Yeah. You know, asking essentially for homework, you know, uh-huh. uh, what should I be reading? You know, or, or where did you get the idea for that? How come we don't do this? Uh-huh. Well, you know, well, I saw it done this way at this other restaurant. Why, why are we doing it this way here? Uh-huh. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, that... That's uh, those are the kids that you, you you know like in any other subject. Um, those are the kids who are probably most likely going to succeed. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, they, you know, on the one hand, as a as a chef, you know, in some ways, those are the kids that don't require the most input. Right. But they're the kids that you want to give the most input because your your input is is most rewarded. Yes. Right. Right. Um, in in you know watching them succeed and also knowing that once they've you know that once they've internalized your your standards and your way of doing stuff, you don't need to worry about those kids. Right. Right. Um, and then you know, I, you know, you go spend your time on the on the weaker links. Yeah. Um, but that that mentoring, I think, is different in every single case because every every kid that comes through your door, like who's who's hungry, is different. You know, yeah. they all have different skill sets. They all have they all learn in different ways. Um, and they all have sort of different long-term desires. Yes. So there's and, no standardization you know, it, of mentoring. It's just you kind of do it on the fly and according to how much time you have. And Right. And, you know, I, I've asked plenty of them, okay, what do you want to learn next? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to learn to butcher more. Right. Well, fine. Okay, come in a little early and, you know, go spend some time with the butcher. Right. Right. Um, or, you know, oh, we've got a whole pig coming in on Friday. Make sure you can carve out an hour to spend some time with me down in the basement. Right. Right. And I'll show you how to do this. Yeah. Um, you know. And then, I, you, and then you have to, at some point, relinquish the, the control and let them try their hand. And that, that can be quite costly, I would imagine. For example, butchering a pig. Uh, you know, buying a pig is a sizable investment. If somebody doesn't butcher it correctly, you have a lot of loss, more well, loss well, than you, you normally would. You know, there, there's a lot of oversight until you let them go solo. Yeah, <laughs> I'll bet. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. But this has been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed great. Thank this. Thank you, as always. This is, this Did is you great. Like it's always it? a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you. 
thank you. I will do it again. We'll pick next time you pick the topic, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks so much Already, to my thanks, sponsor. Katie. Take care. Happy holidays. Hey, you too, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, happy holidays to all of you out there. Uh, I think I have one more show this season. And um can't remember who it's going to be, but uh, don't forget to hit that pledge button, people. Come on. Come on. Come on. I want to so I want to see some love here. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, thanks again to my sponsor and to Jack Insley, my engineer, as always. So long for now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.